This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's time that I meet Tree, the guy at the center of everything. I have so many questions for him. I tried to reach him over and over again. I sent emails, I left voicemails. I spoke to his partner, Christine, who promised to pass along my message. After I didn't hear back, I followed up with her. I still didn't hear from Tree. And so finally, it came time to knock on his door. Early one evening, I drove to an address where he'd registered an LLC with the state of Colorado. The apartment building is located in Cherry Creek, one of the ritziest neighborhoods in Denver. I entered a lobby and found the apartment listed on the top floor. I took an elevator, walked down a hallway, and stood before the door. Hi, Trina Nguyen? Yeah. Hi, my name is Chris Walker. Okay, um, I will call the police if you come here, Chris, to my house. That's not okay. You know that. Well, I've been... You, you, you know that, right? I, I know that you know that, right? It's actually right? not, and I've been trying to reach no, you. No, this is harassment. This is harassment. You understand this. Please, stop. That interaction might have been tough to hear. But sometimes knocking on doors is the only way to get answers. In fact, Tree's home wasn't the only one I went to while reporting this story. More about that later in this episode. But getting a hold of Tree, I had to exhaust all possibilities. I wanted to give him a chance to respond to everything other people said about him. But more than that, I wanted to understand his thought process. What was going through Tree's mind during the syndicate's rise and fall? And most baffling to me, what was he thinking when he passed on a chance to go legal in 2014? By all indications, he had the cash to finance a transition to the regulated market. So was it arrogance? The assumption that if he hadn't been caught yet, he wasn't going to be? In refusing to sacrifice half a year of harvest to merge with a licensed dispensary, Tree kept the syndicate in the black market and doubled down on his risks. If this were poker, he'd be all in. So I wondered what he thought his next move would be. Because as it happened, he never got to make it. Tree's decision to pass on the merger spelled the beginning of the syndicate's end. I'm Chris Walker, your guide in this series about high-flying pot smugglers, the rise and fall of a criminal enterprise, and the evolution of marijuana's black market in the era of legal weed. From Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment, this is The Syndicate. Tree may not have wanted to talk to me, but I still pieced together plenty of information about his background and the origins of the syndicate. Here's what we know. Tree Nguyen was born during a fateful year for the country of Vietnam. In 1975, his parents and older siblings were struggling to maintain a farm and a semblance of normalcy after decades of bloody conflict. The family lived in South Vietnam, and in April of 75, just a few months before Tree was born, Everything in their lives turned upside down. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. 
The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. A North Vietnamese tank broke the gate at the president's palace in Saigon. A communist soldier ran the revolution's flag across the empty lawn. As South Vietnam's capital surrendered, countless citizens attempted to escape along with American troops. They were desperate, frantic, Many understood their survival depended on fleeing the advancing communist armies. And then it happened, their worst nightmare. The city of Saigon was renamed today. The victorious communists who forced the city's surrender said the capital of South Vietnam henceforth will be known as Ho Chi Minh City. Tri Nguyen entered the world four months after the fall of Saigon in the midst of violent change. The northern victors executed many of their former adversaries using death squads, and the new regime forced countless families into re-education camps. By 1978, waves of refugees sought ways to escape the country. A boatload of Vietnamese refugees at the end of a 300-mile journey from Vietnam to the eastern coast of Malaysia. They come ashore at the rate of 10,000 a month much faster than the United States or any other nation is willing to accept it. At the time, news outlets called them Vietnamese boat people. The Wynn family, with baby Tree in tow, was among them. Tree would later tell Pat about the harrowing boat journey. You know, a lot of kids in, in, in some kind of boat, quite the trip, and getting their, their possessions stolen at one point and still having to keep going. Thefts like the one the Wynn family experienced were not uncommon, as well as worse fates. Many don't make it this far. They're attacked by pirates, drowned, or starved to death. Tree's family survived and became among 280,000 people who fled Vietnam and were admitted into the U.S. between 1978 and 1982. Eventually, the family resettled in Minnesota, in a mid-sized city in the south of the state. Welcome to Rochester, a budding community in southeast Minnesota. Consistently named as one of the top places to live in the United States, Rochester is a... In Rochester, the winds staked out new lives. Tree, still a toddler at the time of the relocation, grew up speaking English. In their new home, the family grew by more than six children. Some assimilated easier than others. Tree was particularly successful at adapting to American life. He became a popular figure in high school, quiet but charismatic. It was an achievement for a refugee in white Midwestern suburbia. He was also attentive to the needs of his family. So my brother T has always been the one that's kind of stepped in to take care of me because my dad is um, not really there emotionally. That's Tree's sister Lana, describing him during her interrogation. He, you know, the Vietnamese culture, the man just kind of doesn't really do much. The woman takes care of everything. And then so my brother, he steps in and he's like, you know what, go to college, um, travel the world, see it from this um, point of view and see it from that point of view, which is always stretching me and challenging me to grow. Tree's imagination stretched beyond the confines of suburban America. He read widely and thought critically. He said life was what you made of it. And his family's experience in Vietnam showed that you couldn't take anything for granted. Lana took the messages to heart and looked up to her brother. He exuded confidence and leadership, even if he had a rebellious streak. Whether or not she knew it, in high school, Tree joined a revolution, a weed revolution. A student of history, he appreciated Pot's political side. And sure, 
He enjoyed passing around a joint or two himself. But Tree was also something of a botanist by nature. He'd joke that he was drawn into growing weed because he inherited a green thumb from his parents, who'd been tea farmers before the war. Through growing, Tree discovered a tight-knit, passionate community that experimented with potent strains in New Age hydroponic cultivation methods. It was a collaborative movement, a constant sharing of tips and techniques. Tree passed on what he had learned on his own, lighting tricks, cloning and trimming hacks, but he learned far more from the people he surrounded himself with. And no underground cultivator had more of an influence on Tree than a man who became a veritable cannabis legend in the Twin Cities, Tom Dispinet, the same person who decades later became Tree's key distributor for the syndicate. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Like Tree, I tried to reach Tom Dispinet for months, but couldn't find a trace of the guy online. No phone number, no email address, no social media profile. The only thing I could find was a house deed, listing an address that may or may not have belonged to him. I sent a letter to the address, but nothing came back. And so, here I am again, this time in Minneapolis, approaching a stranger's door. The difference is, this time, I'm genuinely nervous. Two sources strongly advised me against going to Tom Dispinet's house. They asked not to be named, but they both said Tom was dangerous. It wasn't just that he didn't want to be found. His nickname was CT, and the C standed for crazy for good reason. He might shoot me. Hi, uh, CT? Uh, where are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking for you. I sent you a letter a while back. Um, I don't know if you received it. I'm a reporter from Denver. Oh, okay. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering if I could talk to you about a podcast I'm working on. Okay. I decide to turn off my recorder until I can ask him if he'll speak to me on the record. But first, Tom takes me to his kitchen, where he begins awkwardly fussing with dishes in his sink. Want anything to drink, he asks, avoiding looking me in the face. Beer, water, coffee? Uh, coffee would be great if you have it, I say. He pours grounds into the bottom of a French press, then pulls out a heavy-looking bottle from a floor-level cabinet. Aged bourbon. Apparently, this is going to be spiked coffee. Oh boy, he drawls. So how long you in town for? Lanky and wearing plaid, Tom Dispinet looks more like a college professor than a big-time drug dealer. His graying blonde hair sweeps across a pair of square-frame glasses. He's also jumpy, both in his words and his movements. He asks if I want to come down to his basement so he can show me something. I hesitate. Uh, lead the way, I say. Tom takes me down a narrow staircase, the steps crowded with power tools including a saw. At the bottom of the stairs, Tom disappears into the dark. Over here, he says, flipping on the lights. 
I follow a few steps behind, unsure of where he's leading me, until he grabs the doors of a cabinet, swings them open, and there is another collection of aged whiskeys. Heirlooms, it turns out. Some of the bottles are from the 1920s. Tom tells me that his grandfather was a prolific bootlegger during the Prohibition era. We both chuckle. Smuggling runs in the family. In fact, right on the other side of the room is a gross setup where Tom used to cultivate marijuana. Now the planter beds are full of chili peppers. Tom's trying to turn a new leaf. He says that he didn't like that I called him CT at the door. Now that we're both more relaxed, he allows me to record him. Crazy can have two meanings. I think it just meant that, that I was more of a light than something that was off. I think crazy being like crazy fun. He's retired other nicknames from his past too. But I just know a lot of stuff came from Indian lore and I just look at the feathers being kind of like the native, native way here. And then everybody would say, God, my lucky, lucky streak, lucky Tommy. And I would say, yeah, that's great. And then eventually they just called me feathers instead of lucky feathers. Huh. In conversation, Tom goes all over the place, but he's kind of brilliant if you can follow along. I ended up spending an entire afternoon with him. Turns out, Tom played an important role in exposing tree to cannabis. Unlike your average street hustler, Tom articulated its spiritual side. He first tried weed in high school and felt transformed. Conversations took on greater depth. Music sounded amazing. Nature looked more vibrant. And that feeling only intensified when Tom went to study abroad in India for a year. He saw how Indian society, or at least some parts of it, embraced pot's use right out in the open. On the subcontinent, he saw fields of cannabis. And Tom began mind-bending experiments with yogurt drinks infused with weed. The first times I had Banglassies, this is in, in Varanasi, uh -huh. and you would get that frothy milkshake. Oh, that curd drink tasted great. That would put you five, six hours of wandering along the ghats. You'd be paddling on the, the Ganges and then you'd, hours would roll by and you're like, wait, am I just kind of dumbly fried? For some revelers, the weed milkshakes are an essential part of the Indian holiday holy. And Tom was surprised to see that the Indian government even authorized certain shops to sell bung lussies, legal weed. But what amazed Tom most were cannabis's mystical undertones in India. A real ancient belief uh, that Lord Shiv had, had brought it down. To me, it seemed like when you'd say Bom Shankar and you'd pass the, a big chillum in a large group of sadhus, and it was a sacramental message at that point. Marijuana wasn't merely something you did for fun. It could be a religious experience. So when Tom got back from India, he felt a calling to spread the herb. He was like a hippie mafioso reborn. He figured that if he grew high-quality strains, he could spread the types of spiritual experiences he'd had in India. But where to get the right seeds? Tom didn't have much luck finding artisanal cannabis in Minnesota, so he looked abroad and connected with a cannabis outlaw named Mark Emery in Canada. Emery's seeds weren't cheap, but they were supposedly the best. In Vancouver, Tom paid $400 for just 10 seeds. At least the hefty price tag came with some advice for how to sneak the seeds back over the border. It's easiest if you just put them under your armpits. Like, it might rip a couple armpit hairs off, but we just 
tape those up and then uh, I'd wear those Echo shoes. Those ones with the foot soles that come out oh, and yeah. you could just stack any amount of money on those that make you look taller. Back in Minnesota, eight of the 10 seeds sprouted. That was enough to get Tom started. With the help of some growing books, Tom didn't just become adept at cultivation, he developed a reputation for being one of the best underground growers in Minnesota. In two days I could come up with the right fluorescent pattern and to get all those trays and have the domes over, have them all rooted in a week, week and a half. Yeah. And then by a couple more weeks, have them all in cups and by, well, there you go, you do the math. Tom's reputation attracted other aspiring growers. He met Pat Kincannon, as well as another young man named Tree Wynn. I was like 95, six, seven, I knew T. All farmers at heart, Pat, Tree, and Tom learned a lot from each other. They were also friends. And our exploring was at a peak. Pat recalls going on canoe trips together. We'd jump in a car and just go up and investigate some different area that we haven't been to before and look up on a map and look at a river and say, hey, I think we can go from point A to point B. And, you know, it was great. It was, a, it was certainly a wonderful time in my life. Sometimes they invited other characters into the mix too, like Peter Lander, the man whose funeral decades later ended up reconnecting Tree, Pat, and Tom. But as a trio, Pat remembers having deep and wide-ranging conversations. Around a campfire, Tom recounted his marijuana experiences in India. And Tree would bring up philosophers like Noam Chomsky, waxing poetic about power structures and how the government overreaches into people's lives. Sometimes he drew upon the experiences that his family had suffered. That was one thing that always stuck out to me is he was smart and seemed like he was successful and fun and energetic and smart. Though the trio spent plenty of time talking about growing weed, they didn't brag about what they could bring in dealing it, even if they all knew the street price. During the 90s, artisanal pot fetched up to $5,000 a pound. That's compared to about 2,000 today in the black market. Each had his own outlets in particular way he liked to sell pot. To keep the whole order going, you couldn't be much of a, a true high ass. It really did take a lot of dexterity. At one point, Tom was the biggest pot dealer for the University of Minnesota, a school of nearly 50,000 students. Even the low rent frat boys who peddled weed at significant markups sourced their wares from Crazy Tom, Lucky Feathers, Dispinette. Tom ensured that the bright young minds at the University of Minnesota got baked on the very best stuff, offering up strains like Golden Goat for the Golden Gophers, the name of the university's sports team. Oh, remember that, by the way, because the mascot's name comes up again in the syndicate's story. As for Tree, he wasn't hawking weed to the Golden Gophers, but he had plenty of customers. One of his friends told me on background, Tree had made his first million by the time he was 20. That seems like an astronomical figure to be sure. I asked Tom about that. Made and lost maybe enough times, yeah. But Tree always made a point of supporting his family members, being an emotional rock and financial lifeline for his siblings like Lana. And um, he was the one that helped me through college. And then anytime if I need something like- Tree? Okay. Tree, I call him That's okay, Tree's fine. Okay. And so, He's always been my personal mentor, my brother, or, you know, stepping in as a father figure. Yeah. Always looking out for me. Not just a father figure, but a family man. Our family was his first priority. That's Tree's partner, Christine Root, describing him during her interrogation. We started dating when we were teenagers. 
when I was like 14 or 15 years old. They later had two kids together. And by all accounts, Tree's family meant everything to him. According to Christine, at the time Tree became a father in Minnesota, he had nothing to do with marijuana. He put all of his entrepreneurial eggs in one basket, starting a sustainable LED lighting business. This is the same company you've heard mentioned a couple times in the series. But Christine provided much more clarity on what happened. In her interrogation, she says that Tree aimed for the stars, going after huge contracts. One of his biggest clients was Lockheed Martin. In 2009, Tree gambled on his biggest contract yet, a job that would make him millions and provide a pathway to all sorts of other jobs across the state and maybe the country. And had been working with the city of St. Paul on a lighting design, street lighting design project, and he put in a lot of effort and work into it. Tree thought he was a shoe-in. No one had put as much time, energy, and lobbying into securing that contract. But then... And then at the end, they opened it up to a bid, and someone underbid him. And I think he just got like a really sour taste in his mouth after being hosed on that project. And said, you know what? Forget it. Tree's brother also noticed how hard he took the rejection. I could see that there was just failure. There wasn't any money you know, that he was making. It seemed like, and I could sense that he, uh, he was um, unhappy. He was more than unhappy. For someone who prided himself on his business savvy, losing the contract with St. Paul was embarrassing. Treed sunk his whole being into chasing a dream to build an empire and make his family secure, only to sputter at the finish line. Humiliation festered. The dream was still there, making his family secure, but now Tree worried about mounting debts. He stressed over his next move. Until one day, he surprised friends and relatives by announcing he was moving his family to Colorado to pursue a new business opportunity. Everyone, including Christine, trusted that Tree knew what he was doing. There's no reason for me to, you know, feel like I couldn't trust him. And if he, you know, like I said, I was so focused on the kids. If he came home at the end of the day from work, I didn't ask him a million questions about what that looked like. I just said, oh, great, well, Oliver's constipated because he's got da 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 going on, and, you know, had a temper tantrum today because he couldn't have a such and such, and we had a play date at so-and-so's house, and that's all I was thinking about in the day. I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to look past my everyday to question the validity of his life. We beeped out the kids' names there to protect their privacy. Christine claims that she didn't know about the illegal nature of Tree's marijuana business in Colorado. But certainly, she could appreciate what a great provider Tree became in the new industry. Moving his family into a nice neighborhood, enrolling the kids in good schools, hiring his siblings to join him in a growing business. In other words, being a family man. Except, there's no getting around the disaster on the horizon. You already know that the cops are going to get involved. The irony in Tree's trajectory is that in going back to what he knew, the black market, he inadvertently screwed over his family the most. By the end, some of Tree's relatives took the hardest falls. That motherfucker left his, his own sisters sit in jail. Both of them sat in jail. His own sisters in jail. And how exactly did that happen? Here's where it all started to turn sour. So in uh, January 2014, one of the detectives from the Denver Police Department, he received a call. Enter law enforcement, 
namely DEA agent Randy Ladd. He's a veteran investigator with the Drug Enforcement Agency's Denver field office and one of the principal agents who took down the syndicate. As with all good cop tales, each investigation has its own origin story. And Ladd says that this one began innocuously enough. In January 2014, some neighbors in a North Denver neighborhood complained that the power transformers on their block kept blowing out. They suspected the culprit to be a large industrial warehouse located across East 43rd Avenue. After weeks of flickering lights, spoiled food, and unreliable juice powering their homes, the residents were pissed. So the electric company was called out there. Technicians arrived, and lo and behold, they encountered a huge marijuana grow house. Granted, considering the location, that fact alone wasn't unusual. But the technicians noted the warehouse's jerry-rigged electricity grid and portable generators. Both violated city safety codes. They were far enough out of line that the electricians felt that they needed to contact the city. And uh, a member of Denver uh, Police Marijuana Interdiction Team went to investigate. And here's where it all turned. The guy who came wasn't just your run-of-the-mill cop, like the types Aaron Ellering described visiting some of the other warehouses. They made it very, very easy to succeed as far as starting an illegal operation. Because those cops didn't know what they were looking for and didn't know what to ask. But this guy belonged to the Denver Police Department's Vice and Narcotics Bureau. He knew the ins and outs of marijuana regulations in Denver, a detective by the name of Chris Schatz. When Schatz arrived on scene, he entered the warehouse and found a sole individual working there, Michael Glick, who went by the nickname Cowboy. Cowboy gave the detective the same explanation that had fooled inspectors at the syndicate's other warehouses. This grow was a co-op for medical caregivers, he said. He personally oversaw 500 of the warehouse's plants for his five patients, and the other plants belonged to several other caregivers. Cowboy showed Shots his caregiving paperwork. He figured that would do the trick, that the detective would soon be on his way. Instead, Shots asked to see the room where harvested marijuana dried. Piled in a corner, the detective observed a small mountain of packaged flower buds, a crazy amount of pot to amass for patients, even in a quote, co-op of caregivers. Schatz raised his eyebrows. He declined to be interviewed for this podcast because he frequently does undercover work. But as he later told DEA agent Randy Ladd, he knew something was up. When, when you talk about whether this marijuana would go to their patients, there is absolutely no way that a person could physically consume the amount of marijuana, even if it's in concentrate and they put it in their salad oil and all of this other stuff, the bottom line of it is every three months they could produce a harvest of 99 plants on behalf of that patient. So they're talking 300 pounds minimum a year for one patient. In the studies I've read, somebody can smoke approximately three ounces a week if they don't have a job. Schatz started asking tougher questions. Where was this marijuana really going? How could it all be for patients? Cowboy got nervous. This detective wouldn't let up. Schatz pressed Cowboy harder and harder until he broke. Everything spilled out. This was all tree winds operation, Cowboy said. There were five large warehouses around Denver. And yes, 
Most of the warehouse's product wasn't for patients. It was all going to Minnesota. From that moment on, the Denver Police Department had the syndicate in its sights. The beginning of the end. But the syndicate's top brass didn't know that yet. All Tree knew was that the cops had questioned one of his managers, and now there were all sorts of unwanted inspectors crawling around the facility at 43rd Avenue. Cowboy didn't tell his boss he'd spilled the beans. He lied, insisting that the officers told him he just had to get the building up to code. And so, Tree and his lieutenants, including Pat, Kyler, Tom, and Joe, had no clue that law enforcement agencies, at least local ones, had initiated a drug trafficking investigation into the syndicate. He was so clueless that Tree held a company picnic to celebrate the opening of a new $750,000 warehouse. Almost everybody came out to it. They brought their families. Huge barbecue, ton of beer. Burgers and chicken sizzled on grills. Kids ran around the playground. In a touching moment, Tree and other managers made heartfelt thank yous to all the employees gathered, as many as 60 people. Today, Aaron Ellering looks back bittersweetly on that picnic. Would you say that was like the high point? Absolutely. Absolutely it was. Everybody was there. Uh, Drinking beer with your friends. And, yeah, yeah, you know, literally, you know, we got a, a game of football going. We got the kids at the park, the dogs running around. We got the smokers rolling. We got, you know, it was everybody from the from the, the, the janitorial staff all the way up. Many of them looked up to Tree. Here was a manager who not only cared about his relatives, but created a familial atmosphere for his employees. Even today, despite all the lives he upended, Tree maintains that image of a family man. You see, there was a second part to my interaction with Tree when I knocked on his door. I have children. I understand I, that. No, you don't. But there are some important things that I need to tell you. Um, I have an ethical obligation to give no, you a chance. You don't. Listen, I have a family and I have kids. Okay, please leave. Okay. Please, thank you. Okay. As much as Tree holds on to his family ideals, some of his closest associates felt like he lost sight of what was best for those he cared about in the end. I'm sure everyone has their arguments, and overall, I know, you know, he had his family there working. I mean, I know the kind of, the kind of deep down, you know, it was lost. I can say that parts of it, he lost it, and I'm sure he's guilty about that. His failure to go legal, along with an excessive descent into parting and consumption, endangered everyone. Maybe if Tree hadn't chosen himself. Maybe if he hadn't sought short-term profits over long-term stability, the story of the syndicate would have been lost to the annals of the marijuana underground. Just another rumor about black market daredevils turned corporate giants. Instead, Cowboy's confession set up an inevitable reckoning. Law enforcement began looking into the syndicate. But incredibly, another six months passed before the cops caught their next lead. Even under surveillance, the syndicate moved products so clandestinely that Denver police couldn't catch them in the act. As it turned out, their next clue didn't even come from Colorado. It came from out of state, via the very man who was supposed to ensure the syndicate's survival. A man we've already met, a pilot. Yes, it's Joe Johnson who gets the distinction of sealing the syndicate's fate.
We're finally going to return to the very beginning of the series. Joe Johnson picks up the tale, explaining how six months after Cowboy fessed up, the syndicate still sought to expand its out-of-state distribution. And we're trying to open up the Texas market. Tree encouraged Joe to sell to new buyers in Houston, where Joe had recently opened a new jump zone. Skydivers interested in loads of pot? No problem. Joe succeeded in finding buyers. But during a particular transaction in June 2014, the Texas buyers only agreed to purchase $374,000 worth of the syndicate's weed. But Joe had a lot more than that, and the Texas buyers didn't want the rest. So I had gotten 60 pounds of weed um, that I couldn't do anything with. Nobody wanted it. Oh, the distributors in Texas didn't want right. these 60 pounds. Right. Take it back, they told Joe. Joe relayed the information back to his bosses. So I had 60 pounds of weed in Texas, and, and I had $374,000 of their money that they needed. Upon relaying the news, Joe received new instructions. Fly the pot to Minnesota. Maybe Tom could get rid of it. 10-4. But then Joe ran into a problem. And my pilot, my regular pilot, Maverick, it's like, I'm done, I'm out. But you know, and uh, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, we gotta go. We're supposed to go tonight. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't care. I'm not doing it anymore. And I, and I pay this guy, you know, between five and ten thousand dollars a trip. You know, so he was getting well paid. Maverick got cold feet and bailed. Remember, Joe could only fly a small four-seater airplane with his student's license and use Maverick, another pilot, for the larger runs. And they're hounding me for this. And I'm like, fuck it. I had to go back to Minnesota anyway, so I'll just fucking drive. The rest of the syndicate didn't know about Maverick. But Joe figured that if he drove to Minnesota fast enough, Tree wouldn't find out. So he went to a rental place to... Rent, rent a minivan, get everything stashed away in the minivan, da, 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 da. And at this point, I'm pretty sloppy, so I'm just, you know, chucking it in, you know. With the 60 pounds of weed, 374 grand, and a gun chucked into the back of the van, Joe pushed the pedal to the floor. At 1,200 miles, he knew it would be a long drive. So he did what any self-respecting drug mule would do. He took some uppers. So on my way there, um, coked up, methed up, whatever, fucking driving straight through. With cocaine and Red Bull coursing through his veins, Joe determined he'd only stop for gas. It finally came time to do that on a Kansas turnpike near Wichita. Joe pulled into a station in the center of the highway and went inside the convenience store to pay cash for his pump. Upon exiting the store... And I'm walking across to my car to put fuel in, and this guy's kind of smoking through the fucking pumps and hits me. You know when you, when you slam on your brakes and the car goes, the nose end of the car goes down, you know? He hit me right as that stopped. And fucking, he stopped and boom, hit me and threw me to the ground. Fucking, my wrist is swolled up, fucking, and my back's all scraped up. But Joe wasn't down for the count. I jump up and I'm, been doing lines in the car to stay awake, whatever, you know, and uh, I jump up and I fucking pounding on this guy's window, you know, like, I'm gonna kill this guy. The yelling and pounding made a scene. So somebody sees, didn't see me get hit, 
but just sees me fucking trying to pull this guy out of his car, calls the police, and police show up. The cops were onto Joe before he had time to think. I'm like, motherfucker just hit me, da 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 da. They're like, whoa, 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 calm down, calm down. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But look, you know, I still hadn't picked up my phone yet. My phone's, you know, a hundred yards away, <laughs> away, and. Uh, and they're like, whoa, what's going on, you know? So they asked the, asked the guy to roll down his window and fucking guy like, loaded, you know, just like drunk off his ass. Just like that, the cops took more interest in the drunk driver and Joe went from instigator to victim. And they're like, oh, hey, we're gonna call an ambulance, get, get you, you know, looked at. I'm like, you know, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I'm just, you know, sorry. I was really upset because the guy almost killed me. They try to call an ambulance. I try to tell them no. And uh, because so, you've got 60 pounds of marijuana and, and $374,000 <laughs> in the back, plus my gun, plus everything, you know. And uh, so I just continue on to my car after they, they start working this guy over, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I, I just hop back into my car and head on down the road. Joe breathed a huge sigh of relief. Like his first smuggling run, this was another one of those times he couldn't believe his luck. Until his eyes settled on the gas gauge. I forgot in the in the whole in the whole uh, commotion of everything, I forgot to put gas in my car. So like fuck. And I don't know how how close the next gas station is. We're on the turnpike, so I flip a bitch, you know pull around and a statey down there waiting. A siren wails. Joe had to laugh as a patrol car came up right on his tail. He's like, do you see my sign back there? I'm like, what sign? <laughs> like the drug dog ahead sign. A drug dog sign. Kansas, as mentioned before, has put considerable effort into sniffing out drug traffickers along its highways. The cop who pulled over Joe wanted to know why he'd turned around in front of a drug checkpoint. It would be similar to pulling a U-turn right in front of a DUI checkpoint. Like I just literally was at the at the gas station getting fuel and told him the whole story. He's like, holy shit, that's crazy, you know? Well, you wouldn't mind me searching your car, would you? <laughs> Joe collected himself. He knew he couldn't cheat fate twice. This was it game over. And at that point, I knew I was done. So I'm like, oh, go ahead, and here's what you're gonna find. As the cop placed him in cuffs, Joe felt sheepish about his mistake. But even though he was busted, he took solace in one fact. He had long ago decided what to say if law enforcement ever caught him smuggling drugs. What was his next move? First thing out of my mouth was I wanted to work for the DEA. On the next episode of The Syndicate, Freefall. We got a call. An individual got stopped in Kansas. The investigation of The Syndicate goes from a local matter to an interagency effort. And we agreed to pool the resources from the DEA. So all of those law enforcement resources came together. And once those agencies have a mole working for them, the Syndicate's whole house of cards starts to wobble. There's some organizations that we disrupt until it collapses spectacularly. This organization we dismantled. That's coming up on episode seven of The Syndicate.
The Syndicate is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Foxipus Inc. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. This podcast was made possible in part by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Visit thesyndicatepodcast.com for more about this story. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Syndicate. If you're enjoying it, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.